L'aspinage au la bouchon, cigarette pote bello, si rakish bakaletto, chiletula tiletua. Hello, welcome back to the American Writers, 100 pages at a time podcast. Um, and in this episode, I'll be continuing to look at this anthology called Adji on Film. It's a collection of James Adji's film writing. Um, we've been looking at the stuff from 1942 to 1945. This episode will cover film reviews he did for The Nation uh, between 19, mid-1945, pretty much the end of the Second World War, up until mid, I think, uh, 1947 or so. And then we'll finish up those nation reviews in the in the next episode. So, um, in the past couple episodes, I've I've kind of I think laid out what I think Adji's main kind of values about film are, what his main interests, his main criticisms of Hollywood at the time, um, the kind of films he really liked. Um, some of them he really uh, uh, like, for instance, he really liked army orientation films. He really liked documentaries. He liked a certain degree of realism. He had was skeptical of of the big name actor, uh, like the the very famous actor. The the he, you know, especially when they were trying to play kind of run of the mill day to day characters, he preferred amateurs for those types of of roles. So I don't think we have to like uh, dwell too much on that. I just want in this episode. To instead focus on on some of the films he thought were best from from later 1945 until 19, 1947, including a couple that 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 I saw and I really like. Um, one film he he calls a great film is the story uh, or story of G.I. Joe. Well, this film is the story of one company, uh, C Company of the 18th Infantry, um, and it's basically a, a film tribute to to the American infantry during World War II. So it comes as the war ended um, and and really just tries to celebrate their sacrifice, their camaraderie, and those those kinds of themes you'd expect in a, in a war film of the time. He rather liked the simplicity of it. He compared it at one point to, to the writing of Hemingway. Um, but this is kind of what he says to it. Um, about this film um, quote if their picture had been made under the best of circumstances in a time when everyone who had the heart and the talent was free to make the best pictures possible it would still be among the best coming as it does out of a world in which even the best work is generally always compromised into a world which is generally assumed to dread honesty and courage and to despise artistic integrity it is an act of heroism and I cannot suggest my regard for it without using words such as veneration and love Many things in the film itself moved me to tears, and in none of them do I feel that I've been deceived or cynically seduced or manipulated, as one usually has to feel about movies. But not even the finest of the picture's achievements are more moving than the angry, bitter nobility of the intention which is implied behind the whole of it. Um, so, yeah. Um, points out a few faults to it, but more or less he really, really... Um, loves kind of the honesty of this film but there's a deeper kind of narrative he's dwelling on here and that is kind of 
he's he's kind of predicting with the end of the war is going to come a much more cynical, much more corrupted, much more false Hollywood. And and I'll leave it to the rest of his reviews, and I'll leave it to to you or people who know Hollywood and film history to to say yes or no with that about that conclusion. Certainly, Hollywood has that reputation of being uh, rather cynical. Now, we see a lot of the consequences of, of the war and a lot of the films he looks at. A lot of these are, are war films that are sort of providing some reflection on the conflict itself. For instance, um, what's the one I'm thinking of? He mentioned it just in passing. Confidential Agent. Right, which is kind of a reflection on the Spanish Civil War, right? He says the film's intrepidity in calling Spain and even fascism by their full right names would have been easier to appreciate in 1938 or so. I, you know, I don't know enough about this. Was there self-censorship about fascism before the U.S. entered the war? There might have been. You know, U.S. was still in that kind of uh, anti-interventionist mode, so we can imagine Hollywood was being a little bit skeptical about picking sides in their films, right? It being a mass medium and all that. Um, but that one might be worth checking out. And, and um, there's a supernatural fi fiction story here, a horror story, called Isle of the Dead, a horror film. Uh, Boris Karloff, Catherine Emery, Helen Thyming. Thyming? I'm sure it's pronounced. Um, tedious, overloaded, diffuse, and at moments arty, yet in many ways to be respected up into its last half hour or so, then it becomes a brutally frightening and gratifying horror film as I can remember. So that, that's kind of a, a, a good review, essentially. I mean, that's the part of the horror film you want it to be good, right? It's the, the gross out, though, the, the terrifying moments of it. But uh, another one that might be worth, worth examining. Now, there's a big one here. Oh, no, one more before I move on to the big one, uh, Lost Weekend, is The Last Chance. This was a Swiss movie made during the war. It's about, uh, quote, derelict English and American soldiers uh, who have to uh, basically help some refugees across the mountains. Now, here's what's interesting about this film and why Adji was kind of drawn to it, is that most of the players in this film were amateurs. Many of them were actually reenacting their actual life as refugees during the war. And this is the thing that Adji really, really loves, and he wishes there was more of it. Uh, it kind of gives this, this level of realism to it. Um, he's also talking about like the, what, what place will European films like this have in the American movie, for American movie audiences. And, uh, you know, there's, there's kind of European films kind of hesitant to show American films and, and American theaters uh, not fully open to European films. And he says that this is actually a mixed blessing in a way, um, but ultimately he hopes for a more reciprocal kind of uh, uh, marketing of these, these films. Um, quote, I agree with anyone who insists that movies can be international in style and content, but for every good foot of internationalization, I would expect 100 bad and would expect it even if it were not the way the money is stacked. End quote. So I guess his, his skepticism a little bit about this is that it creates a... Um, you might tend to get the worst films from abroad or from America distributed abroad rather than their best. And that's just smart. That's just, that's just people vote with their feet, right? And, and that's just 
the movies that will be distributed may not necessarily be the best ones, right? Uh, living in China, I can speak to that, right? The, the movies that, that do come from abroad and are shown here, none are shown now, really, because Hollywood's been sort of shut down with releases. But, though, you know, China only allows in so many foreign films each year from Hollywood, um, just protect their own film industry or whatever. Um, but those tend to be the tentpole blockbusters. Uh, you, know, you get a few others, but like you'll never get a horror film, right? So quality horror films almost never seen here from abroad. Maybe Japan gets a few, you know, but only if, if you want to see a horror film, you have to see a Chinese horror film. Um, romantic comedies, comedies, all those things just aren't brought in. And instead you get the big blockbusters, which I enjoy. I like those things, but they aren't the best films of the year, certainly. The one exception to that is like after the Oscars, you tend to get like these second run um, Oscar films that get, get played in China for short, short runs. Um, but uh, you have to wait for that. All right, let's jump to it. So on December 22nd, 1945, he reviewed Lost Weekend, right? So this, he, he devotes a fairly long review at four pages, three or four pages, a full column to, to this movie. Now, this is, of course, a, a fairly famous movie. I think most of us have at least heard of it or know a little bit about it, uh, about alcoholism. So Lost Weekend, uh, directed by Billy Wilder, starring Ray Milland and Jane Wyman, based on the Charles R. Jackson's 1944 novel about an alcoholic writer. It um, won four Academy Awards, including Best Picture, uh, best director, best actor, and best adapted screenplay. Um, it's been preserved in the National Film Registry. Registry. So an important film, right? Um, I heard of it. I never actually saw it, but um, I should maybe check it out. Made eleven million dollars on a budget of one million, one point two five million. So um, yeah, basically, it's about an alcoholic writer and and. And a weekend, a few days of his life. Actually, I think it's Thursday through Tuesday, is the, according to this Wikipedia entry. But anyways, what does Adji say about this? I mean, I'm interested in alcoholism because I have, I have kind of my own strange relationship with alcohol. I talked a little bit about this in my review of John Barleycorn by Jack London, an episode that goes way, way back in this podcast. A book I still, I still really love. Um, but anyways, here, I think here's some of his more, um, high praise for the film. He, he's mixed about it, actually. He, he's, he, he notices some faults. He's, he tends to be pretty cranky about films that other people seem to love. But whatever. He, um, he writes this, uh, in one or two scenes you get with some force the terrible humiliation, which is one of the drunkard's experiences. But considering the overall quality of the film it is remarkable how much you you seem to have been given and how little you actually get there is very little appreciation for instance of the many and subtle moods possible in drunkenness almost no registration of the workings of the several minds inside a drinker's brain hardly a trace of the narcissism and self-deceit which are so indispensable or of the self-loathing and self-pity which are so invariable hardly a hint except through abrupt action of the desperation of thirst no hint at all of the many colorings possible in the desperation. The hangovers lack the weakness, sickness, and horrible distortions of time sense which they need. Yeah, so um, 
you know, can that be done on film? That's my question for Adji here. Can that that be done? Has that ever been filmed? Have has this aspect of alcoholism ever been um, truly unlocked? And I'm I'm not sure it has. I think like with everything else, there's certain cliches about uh, that Hollywood draws on, and and alcoholism has its own too. But this is a film just about alcoholism, so this would be the kind of film that you'd expect to maybe go into that level of it right but that's got him thinking about that i think is uh is is a certain level of praise for the for the film um he is he is drawn by it throughout though and it seems to be interesting it seems to be interesting um all right another uh notable film that he reviewed actually i I skipped over the the 1945 roundup uh, but I talked about this in the previous episodes. He, he does those. He does these roundups. These top ten best films of the year kind of, kind of things in, in his column. It's really like a blog. Um, anyways, uh, jumping ahead to April 13th, 1946, uh, he reviews a, an Italian film uh, called Open City, um, which is the story of the underground resistance during the occupation of Rome, so it's, it's another post-war film, but what's kind of interesting about this one is it tries to combine themes of like left-wing resistance and institutional Christianity and their different motives in during the occupation of Rome, and I think that's kind of fascinating. The active resistance versus perhaps the equivocation you get from, from religion and then how that's presented to both those audiences that, that would be drawn to a film about that story of Rome. So this was actually filmed like immediately after the occupation of Rome. So while the war is still going on and, and it's just now being released. And I think that's that's gives it some of its realism. And I think that's what uh, Adji really likes about it. Um, quote, the film's finest overall quality which could rarely be matched so spectacularly is this immediacy. Everything in it has been recently lived through. Much of it is straight reenactment on or near the actual spot. Its whole spirit is still scarcely cooled at all, the exalted spirit of the actual experience. For that kind of spirit, there's been little to compare with it since the terrific liber- libertarian jubilation of excitement under which it was all but inevitably that men like Eisenstein, Dovzhenko, in provoking Kajnik's some to the greatest works of the century, uh, comparing it to Russian revolutionary films. Um, and he's really praising kind of the scenes of violence for, also for their, their realism. So, um, yeah, it, it seems like another interesting film, but that's, that's really a document, almost documentary in its immediacy to the actual events that, that happened. I mean, in some cases, it sounds like just months after those things happened, this was being filmed um, in, in Rome, in the actual place. Well, there's a couple important films here that deal with uh, the post-war experience of soldiers, um, and he, he praises both of them, um, not without some reservations, but he does praise both. Uh, one is called From This Day Forward. This is the less famous of the two. Um, this uh, directed by John Barry. Um, I'll just read the Wikipedia entry for this one. 
Army Sergeant Bill Cummings is about to be discharged after service in World War II. He was a blue-collar worker in civilian life and seeking employment. As he fills out forms and speaks to the personnel of the United States Employment Service, he thinks back on his life events that brought him to this point. Flashbacks show him at various times of his pre-war life. He's shown meeting and marrying his wife, Susan, in 1938. Other flashbacks describe their hard-scrabble life in a poor neighborhood of New York City during the Great Depression. He and the various relatives are shown as frequently unemployed and having difficulty making a living. He and Susan's financial ups and downs are depicted, as are the humiliation of being supported by Susan's bookstore clerking job and being unfairly prosecuted as a pornographer. At the conclusion of the film, he is shown being referred to a badly needed job interview and that Susan is pregnant. So a lot of realism there about just the post-war experience. And also, you know, we often think about like the post-war boom sustained by things like the GI Bill of Rights, which helped mitigate a lot of these troubles, right? Like um, the U.S. government invested a lot of money in sending soldiers to school, getting them jobs, you know, getting their old job if they could or retraining them. That was all the GI Bill of Rights, which, of course, I think most of us know about. Um, but that generation also lived through the Great Depression, right? Many of the soldiers were people who were unemployed during the Great Depression, and, and that's part of their life experience. And that's part of the experience that brings them into the war. I mean, this is the argument made by is it Michael Denning and the Cultural Front, you know, how culture, American culture becomes proletarianized in the 1930s in the Great Depression, and that's part of it, the cultural matrix in people's minds that that brings them to war um it's not the same f philosophy and ideology culturally of of people that, that that they entered the great depression with um so this is a very sympathetic film about uh just overcoming those struggles but also you know what economic life was like before the war you know, for people trying to live through the great depression Aggie says of this Quote, movies so seldom tr even try to be honest or sympathetic about such problems of working class life as unemployment, shelter, and I'm not sure. He, he, he edited out the, the letters here. B-B-S. -dash -dash I'm not sure. Um, but anyways. Uh, so movies... So seldom ever try to be honest or sympathetic about such problems of working class life that the least one can do is to honor the attempt with further honesty. Um, so he, then he opens up with some criticism of, of the film. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's a valuable effort. Now, the movie that does this post-war experience better, he thinks, and of course is a very important film of the, of the time, is, if I can find it, kind of jumping ahead here is the best years of our life of our lives the best years of our lives which I have seen uh, it's been a few years since I've seen it but I know it's it's great uh, he reviewed this on December 7th 1946 so this is the classic kind of coming home from war film right and this film actually cast actual veterans right so there's like a guy who had his hands blown off in the war and had those like hook hands that was actually a guy who had his hands blown off in the war and came home and got hook hands and and had to you know manage his his life 
Now, of course, I don't want to overstate that because most of the actors in the film were established Hollywood actors, but there were a few that did this. Now, the guy with the, the hook hands, this, this guy was Harold Russell. Um, he just died not that long ago, 2002. Um, so Wikipedia identifies him as one of only two non-professional actors to win an Academy Award for acting, the other being Hang S. Noor. Um, and so he won an Academy Award for this, for Best Supporting Actor for this, this film. Right, I think it's the only. He was in a few other films later, like in the eighties. No, just some TV episodes or things. Not, nothing important. So this is like his, his major, um, film role. Um, but anyways, uh, I think that's the kind of thing Adji really liked. Obviously, now he kind of got some criticisms of it. Like it's it's all kind of convenient that. You know, all these veterans of different classes meet in the same bar and chit-chat. I mean, the, the theme of the movie is the best years of their lives, obviously, is the war, right? Because they had a certain community and camaraderie and identity in the war. When they come back, they can't be really fully integrated into their lives. Their, their wives, they don't understand them. Uh, they don't understand what they've gone through. They end up getting these jobs that seem so much less than what they did in the war. Like, you know, serving drinks or something. So that's a common experience that these veterans had of different classes. And Adji's a bit skeptical whether that's true. He writes, I suspect that one of the most dogged truth is that once they become civilians again, most men of such disparate classes or worlds would meet seldom with greater embarrassment than friendliness. And that the picture is here presenting instead of the unhappily likelihood, a hopeful and barely plausible lie. Um, but that, that said, he really, he likes this film so much, he actually does a two-part um, review of it, uh, two columns. This is the first time he does it. He'll, he'll do it later on. Uh, actually, a three-part column for, for uh, Monsieur Verdot, which we'll get to in a bit. Um, so kind of the first column kind of focuses on the bad, I guess, um, kind of the, some of the overdrawn elements, some of the not believable elements. But the second one seems to emphasize the greatness of the film, which he finds in like the photography, the directing, um, the realism and the acting um, and those, those kinds of things. So um, he ultimately likes, likes the film. But I, I just I kind of want to talk about this more as a historical document than, than maybe dwell too much on what Adji thinks about the, the film. It's just, you know, the attention paid to this coming home experience. It wasn't just in films, you know, women's magazines. This is what struck me when I read, read some selections of women's magazines from the 40s, you know, years ago. It was in an anthology for like undergraduate, you know, history classes. It was like a antho little anthology. Um, they're, they're meant to be read over like a couple weeks. Um, it's a little anthology of women's magazines from the 40s and 50s or something, and maybe up through the 60s. Very interesting stuff, but I was struck how much in the 40s where there was these comments like, what do you do if your husband comes back and he seems different, right? Like actually talking about PTSD, essentially, um, or you know, how to integrate them back into the family, how, how to introduce them to their kids if they never met their kid before, and that was a real experience. I mean, that's essentially what happened to my grandfather. He never, he married before the war, and then he never really saw his son until the war, war ended. Um, 
so th- these are all real experiences and, and media culture had to kind of deal with this and talk about this. And this is maybe the best movie to do that, to actually uh, say this is the challenge of civilian life after, after this great adventure, after this great war, after doing amazing things. How do you come back and, and serve drinks? How do you come back and, and just chit chat with, you know, do small talk with your wife? Can you even, you know, still stay with your wife? It, it's and the, and the movie deals with these issues. And I, I really recommend it if you haven't seen it. Um, um, so as for his his movies of 1946 roundup, he, he says the best movies of 1946 were the best years of our lives. Brief Encounter, Henry V, Let There Be Light, Open City, and The Raider. Uh, I didn't talk about most of those, but uh, he has he has columns on those. If you have a copy of Agion Film, you can look at it. Um, Let There Be Light is a John Huston film. We'll, we'll talk about John Huston later because that's he's got a whole essay on on Huston called the Undirectable Director. So uh, quite a few good films. I don't want to say he's optimistic about Hollywood because overall I think you get the sense you get from these film reviews from the nation is, is an overall pessimism about the film. Um, but like he says, most lists of the 10 best this year, including my own list of six, were very thin on Hollywood. And many reviewers commented on the fact rather as if Hollywood had hit its nadir. It seems to me unjust to single out for sudden vilification one particular Hollywood year when every year for so long has been very moderately fresh and egg. So pretty harsh words for, for Hollywood. Anyways, what are we at? 30 minutes. So let's, um, what else do we have here? Um, jumping into 1947. An Eisenstein film, um, Ivan the Terrible. Um, always uh, an event and of course he likes it I think that's one of the films he wrote under jail under jail in jail anyways what I really want to get to is Monsignor Verdot um, as you probably know Monsignor Verdot is Chaplin's last movie it's his second talkie after the great dictator but it's, it's also a notable film because it's his first feature where he's not playing the tramp or someone like the tramp. Uh, I don't know if the character in The Great Dictator is technically the tramp. Uh, but let me, let me see what the internet says about that. Because I actually want to say, I think Modern Times is the last appearance of the tramp as a character. Um, it's just in The Great Dictator, the, the character sort of looks like the tramp. He kept that same look, but... But, it, but it's kind of a distinctive character. Um, yeah, so on the Western Front in 1918, a Jewish private fighting for the Central Powers, nation of Tumania, violently saves the life of a wounded pilot. Yeah, so this is a different character, but he also has that, that, that um, mustache, that Hitler mustache, right? The Chaplin mustache. Um, so, um, so Monsignor Verdot then is his final film. And one that's really different and kind of disturbing, if you haven't seen it. It's about a kind of down on, a, down on his luck 
professional man, uh, kind of a middle class guy who loses his job. His kind of skills are no longer necess- required. I think it's, it's sort of connected to the Great Depression in that way. And then he takes to applying his skills, his abilities to seducing and marrying rich women and then murdering them for their for the insurance money and inheritance. So uh, Henry Verdot has been a bank teller for 30 years before being laid off to support his wheelchair bound wife and child. He turns to the business of marrying and murdering wealthy widows. The Corvée family becomes suspicious when Thelma Corvée withdraws all of her money and disappears only two weeks after marrying a man named Varney, to whom they they only know through a, f- a photograph. Um, so eventually he gets arrested. He gets uh, convicted of murder and he's going to be executed. Right. So he gives this famous speech at the end um, where he kind of make some pretty profound like philosophical claims I, I think you can go find these on youtube um which kind of he says like in his trial like I, you know i had something to offer the world i'm an intelligent man but the world didn't want my 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 abilities so i just applied them you know to what i could do it's like it's the like same kind of defense a, a brilliant you know drug king kingpin might say right like that person you can run a drug organization you could run run a business but uh, you know the world didn't provide them that opportunity so what you sell drugs or whatever that, that's sort of his attitude here um okay this is what wikipedia says about this later before being led from his cell to the guillotine a journalist asked him for a story with a moral but he answers evasively dismissing the, his killing of a few for which he's been condemned as not worse than the killing of many in war for which others are honored. Wars, conflicts, it all's business. One murder makes a villain, millions a hero. Numbers sanctify, my good fellow. His last visitor before be taken to exe- exe- being taken to be executed is a priest, uh, Fritz Lieber. Uh, when guards come down to take him from the guillotine, he's offered a cigarette, which he refuses, and a glass of rum, which he also refuses before changing his mind. He says, I never tasted rum. Uh, and that's the end of the film. Now, what's kind of striking about this is it doesn't come off as a comedy, right? It's Chaplin's known for making these comedies. In fact, Adji wrote this whole um, discussion of Chaplin in comedy's greatest era. Go back to my first episode in this series where I talk about this. But he says of Chaplin, like, he can create, like, a constant stream of laughter, right? He's kind of unique in that way. Um, And if you've seen City Lights or... Modern Times or Gold Rush. I mean, these films stand up as comedies, right? A lot of comedy is historically situated, right? That's certainly true. But, you know, this is transcendent comedy, I think. I think anyone who's really seen it, watched it, know, knows what I'm talking about. Like the, the factory scene in Modern Times, you know, that never is not funny. Or the, the food eating machine, right? Brilliant stuff. Um, I show that to my students sometimes and, you know, even now, uh, constant laughter for, for five minutes during that scene. And I mean, this doesn't sound like a funny movie and it, it's not particularly, there are f- funny moments, but the comedy is like much more meta. It's much more, it's a macro. It's like, uh, it's this kind of much more cynical, sarcastic look at the entire system, this brutal system. It's, it is a, it is a very, uh, 
I mean, it is a film trying to say something about the system. That's what I'm trying to say. And Adji takes this up right away. He takes up the criticisms, right? And that, that the criticisms about this film. Um, says, it is of interest, but chiefly as a definitive measure of the difference between the things a man of genius puts before the world and the things the world is equipped to see in it. End quote. I mean, that's a great, that's so true, right? How many of us feel, and how many, it's just true that capitalism, it needs a certain set of skills, and people who have those skills can often do quite well, maybe even prosper in capitalism. But that's such a narrow vision of the abilities that people have, right? And so when our own abilities, our own brilliance, our own genius is not appreciated, other because we're uneducated, we're from the wrong side of town, we're just older, too young, or our, our interests just aren't those of, of the mainstream, right? Our skills aren't that, aren't tied to what's popular and what's marketable. We get, we, our skills are just wasted, right? And that's kind of a tragedy of, of capitalism. And I think that's the point Chaplin's trying to make in this, in this film. And Agi realizes this here. Um, going on, the ruck of these reviewers have said, for instance, that the film isn't funny. It's morally questionable and bad taste. The Chaplin should never have stopped playing the tramp. That rail steals your scenes with Chaplin. That Chaplin is no good at casting writing. So these are the criticisms, right? And as to the non-funny criticism, Adji admits, quote, not much of it is, unless you have an eye and a mind for the far from cliche matters, which can be probed and illuminated through poetically par parodied cliche, an appetite for cold nihilistic irony, respect for an artist who subdues most of his outrageous fun to the grim central spirit of his work. And as for the taste of it, Verdot is in bad taste if death is, as so many Americans feel. And if it is in bad taste to treat a serious matter seriously and to make comedy cut to the bone. Um, and the criticism about the tramp is interesting too because he's the f one of the first to kind of criticize nostalgia here. He says, the people who want the tramp are... Our children, essentially. Children are the... Like, you read a story to a child, right? And they want to hear the same story again and again, right? They want to hear it every night or maybe a couple times a night until they bore of it. But they want to hear the same story. And if you change it, they get upset, right? And obviously, that's a problem in culture, I think, even today, where changes get criticized, right? You change the book. You change from the book. People will make three-hour criticism of you on the on the internet, right? Like, look what happened to The Last Jedi. I didn't, I didn't particularly... I don't like Star Wars in general. But I kind of thought what was, they were trying to do in The Last Jedi was kind of interesting. But it was different. And then everyone attacks it. Everyone uh, burns it down. Game of Thrones goes off book. And I'm a book fan. I'm, I, I like the Ice and Fire books. I didn't care much for the show. But when you look on the internet and you see, like, People spending hours and hours complaining about going off book. It's it's crazy, right? You know, people can't handle change. You make Captain America Hydra agent, everyone loses their mind. So people don't like this kind of change. And and Adji knows this. He says, very young children fiercely object to even minor changes in a retold story. Older boys and girls are not, as a rule, respected for such extreme conservatism. So that's a good enough rejection of it. Yeah, 
artists grow. The tramp doesn't have to be around forever. There's other stories to tell. So the first of he does three columns. Edgy does three columns on Monsieur Verdo. The first kind of deals with these criticisms. The second um, focuses on, on theme and the acting and Chaplin's, uh, basically Chaplin's themes and how he presents them and how he acts it. Quote, Chaplin's theme, the greatest and most appropriate to its time that has yet been undertaken is the bare problem of surviving at all in a, such a world as this. With his usual unfallibility of instinct, he has set history in Europe. Europeans are aware of the survival as a problem as we are not. As rightly, he has set aside the tramp whose charming lessons in survival are too wishful for his purposes, for his first image of the responsible man of modern civilization. End quote. In a way, I agree with this. Like the tramp is of, is of the Great Depression. It doesn't fit the New Deal era. It doesn't fit the post-war era that well. The tramp is a free soul intact in his gallantry, innocence, eagerness for love, ridiculousness, and sorrow. We recognize in him much that is dear to ourselves. Verdot is much nearer and darker that we can hardly bear to recognize ourselves in him. Um, great stuff. Wonderful review here. Um, and the third review, the third column, deals with death. Um, and it's not only the death, the theme of death in the film, and the theme of death. Um, I mean, Verdot dies. He's of course a murderer. So death is a theme of the film. But that's not the only one. It's kind of like the the cowardice and the death of Hollywood almost, because he he starts with a little introduction here. Monsignor Verdot has been withdrawn. This is June 21st, 1947. Has been withdrawn and will released, re be re-released only after a universal artist buildup, which will, I hear, try to persuade people that they will kill themselves laughing. It will take care to notify readers of this column of its return and of changes if any are made. I'm grieved to be so late or early with this review, but not very. This film has too long a life ahead of it. This permanent, if any work alone in the past 20 years is permanent. Um, so this, this work will survive, he says, and, and it has, obviously. But, but there's something that, like the cowardice of, the, of Hollywood to not present the film as it is, to try to sell it and try to figure out a way to sell it just as another Chaplin you know, comedy that will have you laughing from, for, for 90 minutes. That, I mean, that's not the film you have, but it's kind of a dark day for Hollywood. I think that's the sense I get. So I, I really recommend these reviews if you can find them. Even if you don't read the rest of Adjian film, to read his reviews of Monsignor Verdot, to watch that movie, to watch it again, um, and to think about because I think it's still relevant today. I think uh, most of Chaplin's films have relevance. I think Modern Times certainly does. City Lights. Um, City Lights is one of the most beautiful moments in, in, in film history in American culture, really. Um, but, but like the mechanistic world, the, the world of traumatized by war, a world with growing indifference between people, a, a world in which we have wasted lives, uh, where we decide we don't need most people. Um, 
their skills are not valued that those 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 themes are, are still so important for us so um highly recommend you 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 look at that um film so yeah that's that so coming up So Adji dies 1955, um, but we, unfortunately, you know, we don't have seven more years of movie reviews from the nation. Um, he stops, he actually leaves both time and the nation in 1948. So we only have another um, pretty much a half year or so of, of film reviews from the nation. No, like one full year, one, full more, one, one more year of columns from the nation. So the next episode, we'll look at that. We'll look at another piece of film writing he did, another essay called The Undirectable Director about John Huston. And I'll, I'll dig into a little bit just to kind of um, fill out the 100 pages uh, requirement of this format. Uh, look at some of the Time magazine reviews. He wrote at the same time he was writing for The Nation for Time, much, much less, uh, more rarely. Of course, uh, The Nation being a weekly uh, time being a monthly. Oh, was worst time weekly too. Yeah, I guess it was. But he wrote less for time, or at least less is included in this um, collection. So it's going to take us to near the end of his of of the film writings we have here. There'll be one more episode, which will be mostly his uncollected film writings and some more on it, some more of his Time uh, magazine. Uh, writing so uh, we're gonna keep moving on with this so um, I'm having fun learning a lot being reminded of a lot of great films so um, as always thanks for listening leave your own comments below about any of these films or any of the films that Adji reviewed that I didn't talk about that you think I should have um, let me know I'll uh, love to hear from you so thanks for listening uh, see you next time La zonche comme seul J'ai la peau de satilatoire J'ai notre seule mine J'ai notre seule cantine Je laisse trop sa vite Je la trace à Villatoire